Podcasting is one of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of the Directors Club, we look at the films of a single director, their breakout hits, legendary classics, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst their filmography. But this time, we, will, we are looking at the works of a single filmmaker, to be honest, because we are returning to take a look at movies created by one brother of Roy Disney, Walt Disney. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And welcome to the happiest podcast on Earth. <laughs> I would love to say it's a small podcast after all, but I don't think we are <laughs> capable of that. <laughs> uh, and definitely, Walt Disney's efforts deserve an extended look that could not even fit in uh, one podcast. So we... Um, split it into two parts and in part one we talked about Walt Disney's early work and his films his full-length films that he made from the legendary Snow White all the way up onto his first live act fully live action effort Treasure Island right we have just entered the 50s with Cinderella and Treasure Island and where we end up is really a new era for Walt Disney an era that is all about diversification because movies are no longer his only concern. In fact, he's got a bigger concern, one that uh, is still with us in Anaheim, California. In the early 50s, we are heading towards the mid-decade opening of Disneyland, which changes the entire landscape for the Disney empire and you put it really nicely when we term it as an empire we had talked in the uh first episode about the kind of amazing ambition that was required uh for him to not just go and revolutionize the and the process of animation but just the sheer concept of being able to believe that that animation which was mostly the providence of short films under 10 minutes could be sustained for a feature length could be avenues for telling um legendary stories and even dealing with cl interpreting classical music pieces it's another level of ambition entirely to create an entire amusement park town replication and name it after yourself <laughs> it's so strange if you think about it because we're used to it now. We've been living with it our entire lives. And it's a joy, an unqualified success, and something that means so much to so many people. But imagine that's just an idea. 
and you just are saying to your investors, I'm a filmmaker and I'm going to create an entire theme park in my in the image of my creativity and my projects. Even as successful a filmmaker as Walt Disney, if you if you take it out of the context, what a great idea it turned out to be, it's somewhat of a crazy idea. Basically imagine people today going out to another part of the country for Avatar Land. <laughs> Which is now part of Disney World. <laughs> ah, yes. Just the idea, though, that, hey, James Cameron's made some great movies. <laughs> Let's go on rides based on his based on his work and see some what what made James, early James Cameron tick. That's an amazing impulse for your for both ambition and and eco and the fact that unlike so many of the directors we've talked about, in fact, so many other creative types and even people from some minor religions uh, like Scientology. <laughs> Disney has been an astounding, it's historical success at giving a physical place to the kind of things that he wanted to give towards people. A sense of wonder and adventure that's now came across at least three generations long. Exactly. And his ubiquitousness at this point also starts to extend to television. And context, again, we're in the early 50s. Movies and television were enemies at this point. There was a uh, Douglas Sirk movie called All That Heaven Allows, in which the introduction of a television into the household was considered an ominous sign of things gone wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Filmmaking, feature filmmakers and television did not mix in the early 50s until Walt Disney. And Walt Disney just didn't have one program. He had a number of them. Around the time they were prepping Disneyland to open, he also had a TV series called Disneyland. This is the show that would eventually become known as The Wonderful World of Color and The Wonderful World of Disney. And he would showcase a lot of the material we've been talking about in part one, and we'll talk about today, in hour-long segments. And he would host them, becoming even more a part of everyone's household. Also in the 50s, the Mickey Mouse Club comes into being, making those mouse ears you see everyone wearing at Disneyland famous and introducing us to people like Annette Funicello and having a show basically geared towards creating young Disney fans. Mm -hmm. And young Disney talent. Some people nowadays you may know actually has got their start from Disney, such as Miley Cyrus. Right. And some you may not, such as Ryan Gosling himself was a Mouseketeer. <laughs> Maybe more than any single individual since the studio days, and possibly overtaking them all, Disney has been a creative influence on the movie scene. So while our first part focused on many films in which he risked bankruptcy... By this time, he is pretty much on the path to ruling the planet, <laughs> or at least the coasts. But 
his creative energy was still there. And not just in continuing his involvement in the films we'll be talking about, but creating an entire other set of films that ended up being revolutionary in their own right. Uh, they were a series of shorts and features called The True Life Adventures. Mm -hmm. Now, we have become very used to nature shows on National Geographic big uh, series like Planet Earth that bring nature into our homes and we don't give it a second thought because, again, for our lifetimes, they've always been there. Right. But when Disney is filming the habitat of lions in Africa or alligators and hippos and all kinds of wildlife throughout the world, people in the 50s did not have access to all these nature programs. This was a world that would have been brand new to a lot of the original audiences of these true life adventures. And many of them went on to win Oscars for best documentary of whatever year they were released. As we were looking on the films of Walt Disney so far, one thing that comes across for me is that I just find make him one of the most unique figures that we've talked about is how often when we think about artists and creative people, the tone you think about what their careers is that of greatness that gets recognized after they've moved on mm -hmm. and that they are just less recognized than they deserve. And Disney, on many levels, is someone who managed to surpass that for being able to go and make these full-length animated films and to, and to have them work and to bounce back from financial setbacks and logistical setbacks that, was, that ha showed his efforts being delayed because of the war of World War II is another. To have be able to put up cities, <laughs> in effect, and parks that bear his name and that still hold up today, but they're not considered egotistical monuments as in places that multiple generations find delight and enjoyment in. But with these nature ones, I get another level to it because now when I look at these nature shows in context with how he has treated nature with this sense of wonder in films from Snow White onwards... And I look at it and go, oh my God, I'm looking at a successful Timothy Treadwell from Grizzly Man. Ah. <laughs> because Timothy Treadwell, for those who don't know, is the subject of a Werner Herzog documentary, Grizzly Man, where he is so enamored by the beauty of nature and the creatures that are in it that he loves these animals and takes so much enjoyment out of being with these animals to the fact that he gives them cute names. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And assigns all sorts of human-type traits to them. And when you look at these nature films today, you'll actually notice that kind of effect. Because he's not really dealing with giving facts to these animals. More like saying, oh, isn't it cute how these, uh, how these uh, otters are hanging around? Isn't, it, uh, isn't this quirky how these, um, uh, how these birds are making their nests? And, and there's a lot of music prevalent towards 
enhancing and making this things whimsical and wonderful to behold, just as much as the music was made whimsical of the animals in Snow White or um, or helping make the dress in Cinderella. Right. There's a very particular, uh, perhaps peculiar tone to the True Life Adventures that will be very unfamiliar to those of us who uh, watch modern nature documentaries. Mm-hmm. Because... The just the facts, ma'am, idea isn't there yet. They are still looking at these as entertainments first. So, yes, you have a series of people uh, filming wildlife in all kinds of exotic locations and getting shots that are stunning. If you watch any of these things, you are, are sure to be impressed even today by what is captured on film but the narration is an entirely different tone it's it's these episodes are written and narrated by a fellow named winston hibbler and if you listen to enough of him you you will hear that his his cadence and his attitude is very much his own so while he does provide some scientific facts He's actually looking to use the footage as their own way of storytelling. So you have a lot of predator-prey situations, and let's say a bird escapes the clutches of an alligator, and Winston will say something like, well, he was grateful to be lucky this time and able to fly back to his family where, yeah. where he'll be happy until he has to face tomorrow's predators. Yes. And, and there are just all kinds of moments like this throughout <laughs> that are just incredibly folksy. And depending on how literal you want to be about the documentary part of your nature documentary will either annoy you or charm you. <laughs> um, it is a, a great comparison, I think, you can make between how he was trying to take the journey of Bambi in his gross and deal with the animation to make things as realistic as possible. And this is the flip side of it, mm-hmm. taking things that are really happening in front of you in a documentary style and imbuing it with a human quality. Although it's probably not surprising to know that the origin of this project was in the Bambi filming Mm. and the fact that they did use real animals as artist models in order to create those amazing realistic portraits. And that got a lot of gears turning in this, in the Disney department. And by 1948, they had released their first true life adventure seal Island. This would be followed by, very acclaimed films like The Living Desert, The Vanishing Prairie, and uh, my favorite, The African Lion. Uh-huh. <laughs> but most notoriously is a film called White Wilderness, which uh, gives us a view of, of the Arctic. So when we're if we're, again, kind of looking at the documentary part, things get a little hairy uh, here in the white wilderness. To be sure. <laughs> um, even Werner Herzog, director of Grizzly Man, did not go as far as pushing the documentary form as Walt Disney's crew did in making this film. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up believing that Lemmings... 
at certain points in their life cycle, committed mass suicide by following each other off a cliff. Do you, do you recall that uh, urban legend? Yeah, it's one of these things where literally describing a lemming is to describe that exact behavior. Right. I literally know nothing else about them <laughs> except they're known for mindlessly following each other, even if the first one's falling over a cliff. As it turns out, it's untrue. Hmm. And most of us have that impression because we saw as kids the White Wilderness documentary and this very remarkable footage of all these lemmings falling off the cliff into the sea, assumingly to either die in the fall or swim to their deaths. But it never happened. The lemmings were imported from a whole nother region into this section mm -hmm. and thrown, <laughs> excuse me, thrown off the cliff yes. by the filmmakers. Yeah, that's when you say it didn't quote, really happen. Uh, you're slightly <laughs> off. The lemmings flying off the cliff to their death, that really did happen, but they were not under their own volition. Those were, <laughs> they were Disney crewmen hurling them there, <laughs> which is hopefully the most evil thing Walt Disney has done. <laughs> Other bits of trickery were more benign. Sometimes shots that appear to be in the wild were, were filmed at zoos. And so there was a lot of fast and loose in uh, the True Life Adventures, but they still are extremely entertaining. And for the footage that was shot, still pretty exciting to see. But for his next full-length movie, he was going to try to depict something that you will never find in any nature documentary, we hope, because that film was Alice in Wonderland, released in 1951. Alice is a bored young girl, but that all changes when she follows a talking white rabbit into his rabbit hole, which leads into a magical dimension of warped reality and such characters as the Cheshire Cat, the Mad Hatter, and the Queen of Hearts. This is a really interesting challenge for uh, Walt Disney and his studio because we've seen through his other films, even films such as Bandby, get some impressionistic touches where he's using a lot of creative depictions of what we're looking at. But now we're dealing with source material, which is incredibly creative and very, very strange. Disney has often felt very free to manipulate his source material to one degree or another. Uh, Snow White is famously a much, much darker story in the grim fairy tale version than it was in the Disney film. In the original story of Pinocchio, Pinocchio squashes Jiminy Cricket when he is displeased with him in the book. Huh. So source material is generally something Walt Disney gets around. 
But Alice seems to be uh, a book that was very close to his heart. And we mentioned in the last episode how his entire career began with uh, the Alice shorts mixing in uh, live action and animation. Mm -hmm. So when it's time for him to adapt Lewis Carroll, he seems a lot more interested in being faithful to the material. And that, I think, leads to some good and not so good results because Lewis Carroll created visuals with words the the poetry of his language the bizarre world he created he was able to make so vivid with words which gave the disney artists a great template but it's also very episodic there's not much of a through line from beginning to end and the a through line is something disney's story people would often add into an episodic story but here, the, the final result remains pretty episodic. Hmm. Atlas can't really change that much over the course on, because when your experiences that you may grow from viewing a Cheshire cat uh, will not help you when you <laughs> encounter a Mad Hatter. And pretty much nothing you encounter when you experience the Mad Hatter will help you deal with life in any significant way, no matter what you come up <laughs> with, no matter what... A crazy um, event or person you experience next. Um, I have a slightly different take than you about that in that you described how Lewis Carroll painted pictures with words, but I think that Carroll's, part of what makes Carroll's work in Alice in Wonderland so special is he actually paints scenarios with words. Mm -hmm. So much of the charm of the book for me was how the characters would say things that and then immediately contradicted themselves and so you were left in a state of um strange anticipation and confusion by just saying well just what the heck did happen mm -hmm. <laughs> and and i feel that there's a part of yourself when you when you read that like it leaves like these holes that your imagination is left to to fill in term, but it's terms of like contradictory whimsy, but Disney's not quite in on doing on depicting that. At least in at least in the movie Alice in Wonderland, when there's a crazy scenario like the Mad Hatter and the March Hare's infamous tea party, Disney shows every moment of them switching places, and every moment that they switch places, they switch places in a different way. They crawl over each other, mm -hmm. or they appear from underneath the table, or they or they teleport from off from a tree, or what have you. And it's and it's depicted over and over again, but that was not what was important about that. The important part was that they make a mockery out of the whole idea of the tea party upon switching places. Right. Roger Ebert had a statement on, comedy is not people with funny hats. It's about people who don't realize that their hats are funny. Mm -hmm. And when you see an announcement, we're like, it's people doing, depicting things in a silly visual way. When the silliness doesn't come from the fact they're doing it in a silly way, it comes from the fact they're doing it at all. And that that's the silly part. Do you see what I'm saying? For sure. But it's not just silliness. Mm -hmm. it, it goes to a level, and I think this is Carol's influence because this doesn't really happen in other Disney films of just completely non nonsensical. 
The whole spirit of the Lewis Carroll thing is pretty much captured in, in this quote that's uh, used in part in the film as well, where Alice meets the Cheshire cat and goes, but I don't want to go among mad people. And the cat says, oh, you can't help that. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. And Alice replies, how do you know I'm mad? And the cat goes, you must be or you wouldn't have come. <laughs> now, that's an attitude that the film tries really hard to convey and and in essence it succeeds in conveying it because the impression we get from all the uh residents of wonderland is that yeah they're they're just crazy they're <laughs> they're not making any sense whatsoever it's really cool for a movie that's meant to be this commercial to kind of have that singular idea of pursuing that kind of strangeness above plot and gearing all their visuals in that direction. But again, it also is a little distancing when you try to think of, well, what's the narrative of this film? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. The movie might try to give some sort of a through line, not just through Alice's general adventures, but maybe more so upon the really, really bad day of the White Rabbit. <laughs> uh, he really needs to get somewhere, and along the way he finds that both his house and his watch are horrifically ruined by uh, the things that Alice is involved in. Right. It creates unique characters that uh, really get the best out of Disney's voice actors. And most importantly, it provides an excuse for some of Disney's most extraordinary visuals. Because he's not utilizing any kind of historical fantasy land like you would in, in, in a princess movie or a real-life location like the forest or a circus or anything like that. Instead, he's creating this world from scratch. So you get the sequence where Alice falls down this seemingly endless rabbit hole and is floating, passing all these strange objects. And this is expert animation that creates this feeling of weightlessness and disorientation. And as Alice keeps changing sizes, depending on the the little drinks she drinks or the cookies she eats, that change of perspective is rich in animation possibilities. Mm -hmm. It's masterfully handled. You feel just how tiny or how massive Alice is um, at, at, at the given appropriate moment. And some of the characters of Carol's are given a nice visual treatment. I was particularly taken by the uh, hookah-puffing caterpillar, <laughs> who, unlike many of the other zany and manic crazy characters in Wonderland, is a more sedate, kind of sneering kind of presence who responds in single syllables that are usually expressed by letters of smoke. Right. <laughs> and eventually just turn into various shapes as, uh, <laughs> to help express what he's, uh, what he's thinking about else. Also unforgettable is the Queen of Hearts, basically the villain of the piece who is uh, constantly screaming off with their heads and whose heads she is referring to are the 
living decks of playing cards that move about in such visually enjoyable ways. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're part of a um, a horrific uh, croquet match, for <laughs> one thing. And also, when they are in pursuit, they manage to cut, fold, and rifle through themselves in an, in an incredibly fun manner, and eventually succumb to a, a sight of hundreds of such card soldiers right. as they amass in almost a great wave uh, to coalesce upon Alice. Another way the film deals with uh, its chaotic content is to fill it with songs. Just about every animated feature we've talked about so far has had their fill of songs, usually four or five per movie. This one has a lot more. They're much shorter snippets, but they're freer to break into each character's kind of signature theme song for just a bit and then go out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I found, like, Alice herself to be a pretty fun presence on, on this film. She is uh, uh, both, like, a very engaging upon trying to deal with the weirdness that develops, uh, but then also has these perfectly dry take on, on the various uh, crazy methods that befall her. Yes, uh, Disney found a really good voice actress that he used her Alice named Catherine Beaumont, mm-hmm. who also has a major role in our next film. That film is Peter Pan, released in 1953. It's the story of young Wendy who loves to tell her younger brother stories of Peter Pan, the legendary boy who never grew up, and uh, Peter Pan's battles with pirates. Then, uh, what a surprise when Peter Pan himself, along with the pixie Tinkerbell, arrive at their window and fly her and her siblings off to Neverland, where they are drawn to Peter's battles with Captain Hook. Here's another project with source material very close to Disney's heart and also source material that many, many people in the original audience would already be familiar with due to the very successful stage play version of Peter Pan. But with both Peter Pan and Alice, even though they may Disney may have an affection for them, and possibly it's because both tales are not fairy tales that have been around for hundreds of years, but were more modern takes uh, uh, through through books. There is some interesting discrepancies that come up in Disney's out depiction on Peter Pan in particular. Right, I don't think Disney felt the need to be as loyal to the original uh, book or, or play of Peter Pan as he did for Alice. And that leads to the film really being opened up to a lot of the kind of epic adventure that at this point could really only be depicted in animation. And the strongest elements of Peter Pan for me come very early and is basically its driving concept of 
the importance of imagination for children and dreaming of impossible things because Peter Pan mm. is a legend before he's introduced as a character. In some ways, I think he's more interesting as a legend than as a character. I would say in <laughs> every way he's more interesting, <laughs> at least in regards to Disney's depiction of him. Right. The The, the strongest bit for me is uh, the entire uh, I, You Can Fly segment mm. because th there is that magic when the kids actually do learn how to fly and have their journey to Neverland. And I'm not sure that the film ever really delivers on the promise of that imagination because Peter Pan himself is portrayed kind of as a bratty kid and Tinkerbell even more so. <laughs> and the, the, the pirates are kind of like overgrown children themselves. So as interesting as the pirate scenes are, they don't quite, for me, live up to the promise of a place where anything your imagination can conceive of becomes real. Well, I think the places that are that are inhabiting out Neverland are de they're definite places. It's not it doesn't isn't as open ended in the terms of the imagination as uh, Alice in Wonderland hints at. Mm -hmm. It's the stuff that little boys of that era would really just love in terms of battling with pirates, visiting the Indians, viewing mermaids, and so forth. Part of what is in the dynamic of the story is how Wendy deals with the people and the, and of those situations. And there's a lot of interesting things that happen in there, and only some of them maybe be by intent. So because Wendy's through line is the idea that she is going to soon have to move out of the nursery with her little brothers because she is growing up, and she has a demeanor that is a little more mature or something she wants to present as a little more mature. And so you see these elements of the little girl in her and also the young lady she's yes. going to become. And that's more interesting to me than Peter's state of perpetual adolescence. Mm -hmm. Part of the thing that gets, that dings the movie quite a bit is not even that like, Peter is in a state of perpetual adolescence, but that the people writing the situations to put him in are in a state of perpetual pre-adolescence, <laughs> or at least have that audience in mind. In other words, you can't get a more of a distinction to what Disney was doing earlier with Bambi, or even with Dumbo, than the fact that he sword fights with Captain Hook and you don't feel there is any danger will befall him whatsoever. Good point. Yeah. Nor, in fact, does Peter Pan feel any fear or trepidation or any reluctance. He basically is a animated Ferris Bueller. <laughs> yes, exactly. When we see him for the first time, they give him kind of a ominous shadow on his face, which is a strange thing to do. For your film's hero. Yes. <laughs> and so he, with 
one exception in that he is a little weirded out by Wendy's affections towards him, but more even that just comes out of a more of a not in any sense of a threat, but that it was just something he just doesn't understand. Right, and and he's not quite as weirded out as Tinkerbell is, however. Yeah, who goes into a fit of raging jealousy that she maintains throughout the entire film, which is weird if you consider that aside from Mickey Mouse. Tinkerbell has become kind of the de facto symbol of the Disney organization. It's strange to see what a bizarre character she's presented as. Yeah, you got that right. It's so weird how like those two would-be mascots, in one case, Mickey had been so starved of being put in roles to let him express a personality. But in Tinkerbell's case, it's a case where... She not only has a lot of personality in Peter Pan, it's a pretty deranged personality. (laughs) She's not just terminally jealous of Wendy, she literally nearly induces her death and is completely unapologetic about it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Also, one of the under-recognized things you can say about Disney is that he managed to create... A sensibility where, even for difficult subjects, you manage to avoid things that were inappropriate for children mm-hmm. to manifest themselves in these in these films uh, through such a range of we've, that we've talked about so far. Here, it gets a little bit over on the margins because the the jealousy it's not just experienced in a malevolent way, like nearly causing her great harm. But also, Tinkerbell is, uh, has by far the shortest skirt of any. <laughs> and in fact, there actually is a very strange scene where she's walking on a mirror and she is admiring her hips. And this is really bizarre when you put in the fact that out of all the female characters in the Disney films that we've talked so far, she actually is literally objectified. Right. <laughs> <laughs> She's used as a glorified pixie dust salt shaker <laughs> to go and give these kids the magic dust that lets them fly. And in fact, there's one scene where she's literally discarded in a drawer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's pretty weird to have a movie inadvertently self-commenting on its own objectification of its main character. <laughs> Yeah, if you you add to that the whole idea that uh, the same voice actor does Captain Hook and uh, the father of the kids, which had actually been a tradition in the play as well. Oh you, wow! Yeah. <laughs> wow, you that never I never realized on that mm-hmm. aspect. Oh, and then from Peter Pan's point of view, he wants to bring Wendy into the Lost Boys to be their mother. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of weird Freudian things going on with this movie. Yes, that's right. Now, again, for however much Disney may have liked parts of this, I can't have think that he was on board in faithfully depicting the sense of missing a motherdom, for example, in such a literal way. Like, mm-hmm. one of the significant differences in the original story is that Peter does ver- miss his mother, but he is reacts very badly to anyone bringing it up. Mm-hmm. So in the movie, his mother or parentage is never brought up at all. Also, there is a lot of potential symbolism uh, slash emotional minefield of the fact that, for example, Captain Hook plays the father, as you said, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But also considering that that 
Captain Hook is also part guy because his hand had been cut off by Peter. And the crocodile who has his hand has a clock. And the clock is ticking. Now, the clock ticks for everyone in a metaphorical sense, doesn't it? So there's all sorts of things that like the idea of losing your agency through the movement, through the, the greedy movement of time mm -hmm. is coursing through the story, but it's not done in, it's not done in the movie. In the movie, the, the movie, the crocodile is a figure of comic fun, just snapping his fingers in frustration as Captain Hook gets swallowed by him at least three times right, right. and then somehow still manages to escape where he actually does get eaten by the, in the book, spoiler alert. So this is another case, albeit a different spin on, on how the kind of creativity and freeform imagination that Disney has in his talents are not quite congruent with the imagination that the author J.M. Barry imbued in the original story. Ultimately, I think what gets this movie a little bit under the best efforts of uh, Disney films has been not just because the protagonist, but the villain is also not that great, in my opinion. Yeah. He's, he... uh, it's, again, when they're battling, you never really fear, because he's treated as just a absolute buffoon. Yeah, the villain needs to have real menace. You can't have a villain that's just comic relief and expect to create suspense that way. And Disney films are usually so good at depicting this. From the Queen in Snow White to the Queen in Alice in Wonderland. And even though the latter had some silliness, she also posed a legitimate threat. Mm -hmm. And you're right, Captain Hook is just too neurotic to be a proper <laughs> villain. <Yeah. laughs> so maybe you're, maybe Dustin Hoffman was, in fact, the right person to play him in, in, in the hook many, many years later. <laughs> but the movie pulls its dramatic punches and more than just, more than just not having any sense of danger at all. Mm -hmm. Because what drama was upon whether they should stay in, Never, stay in Neverland or not, gets resolved by the fact that they just decide to go home, and they do. Right. And then, oh, the Lost Boys, can they go there home too? That's resolved by, nah, they're, that's fine. They're fine mm -hmm. where they are. Just leave them alone. <laughs> well, they, they also kind of, they don't say outright, but it seems to be that this might all be Wendy's dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting interpretation. But I think, apart from, like, seeing her over at the window, that's not really quite dealt with. Right. It didn't state outright, but I think it left itself open to that. But there are moments of great danger and suspense and adventure to be had in this next film where Disney returns to live action in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was released in 20,000... I'm sorry, it was released in 1954. It's
In the late 1800s, ships are being terrorized by a supposed sea monster, which turns out to be a highly advanced submarine built by the mad genius Captain Nemo. Well before such an invention was conceived by the world at large, Nemo envisions an ocean paradise, but will ruthlessly destroy anyone who stands in his way. I think this movie has a real fun distinction among the live-action films that Disney's made. Potentially a dubious distinction, mm-hmm. but um, because his animated films are so grand and vibrant that of the ones that I've seen, the live-action films of his I've seen, this one most approximates, as close as possible, a live-action rendition of how a Disney animated film would be like. So that's why it's such a peculiar, because it's a dubious distinction. (laughs) Well, there's a reason for that distinction, because even though Treasure Island kicked off the live-action films that were filmed in England, this is the first live-action Disney Hollywood big-budget studio effort. Mm. So we've got Hollywood stars in this one. Kirk Douglas, James Mason, Peter Lorre. They've got a budget. <laughs> this, this this movie looks great. And I think you're right. It captures kind of the Disney spirit in a way that a lot of the live-action stuff that I've seen from them just hasn't. For example, the design of the Nautilus submarine is wonderful. I can absolutely have seen how in an animated rendition it would have aspects of being a legitimate looking like a monster as well as actually being a mechanical contraption. It harkens back for me as to all the wonderful devices that Geppetto has in his uh, in his workshop. Yeah, it um there was actually some talk about this being an animated film at one point in pre-production, but they went the right way. That design of the submarine, the design of the interior of the submarine is really gorgeous. Great set design. And then they're even able to make the giant squid really work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have both uh, had the wonderful experience of seeing Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster, <laughs> uh, which is Pretty much, I we would hope the nadir of mollusk attacks is having Bella <laughs> Lugosi desperately grabbing the tentacles and attempting to wave them at his own head. <laughs> they it's very easy to make it do wrong. And it almost did, because they started filming it in a, in a daylight scene, without a storm, and it looked like that. It was just, everyone Ooh. was like, well, what do we do now? And actually, they, they sent it to Walt, and he sent it to his creatives, and they're like, all right, ha- make it nighttime, during a storm. It still looks primitive by today's standards, but 1954 special effects, the, this was sharp. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just because I, uh, when I was growing up, I was into those Ray Harryhausen type uh, stop motion and other practical effects that mm-hmm. I'm charmed by the the effects on this squid way more than any of the CGI creations that have uh, uh, come in over the last decade or so. For sure. Another reason I think this film kind of rises above the pack is what's one of the few times they're using a director who's actually got a filmography beyond being well-known for doing Disney films. Mm. Richard Fleischer, who did the great noir from the 40s, Narrow Margin. He did another Kirk Douglas adventure called The Vikings. Mm. And uh, a lot of people might know one of his later films, A Certain Soylent Green. (laughs) (laughs) 
He's uh, transferred into some uh, sci-fi because Jules Verne, when he made 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, was in fact the science fiction of the time. Many of the elements that were in there were, were actually had not been built yet. And so he not only conceived on the idea of a submarine, but even such things as the light bulbs illuminating were mm -hmm. not in use at the time. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, it was kind of the first steampunk aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> right, steampunk without any retro. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, but that, that was part of Disney's deal, is he was always, you know, he's always looking at technology of the future and nostalgia for the past. So here's a chance to kind of bring the two of them together. Mm-hmm. But it also shares a sort of a sci-fi view of the future, which that other films of that type that we're more familiar with as sci-fi films are. In other words, the dangers of technology. Mm -hmm. Part of its themes follow the idea of, is the technology that he's building, is it possible for the wilder world to accept that, or will they just be used to like nefarious ends? Yes. And this is really sold uh, in the performances, and uh, particularly of James Mason as Captain Nemo. Nemo is a famously big character in literature, and James Mason just hits all the right notes in his very particular brand of relatable villainy that he, he specializes <laughs> in and so yeah he's he's mad he's the villain and and all that good stuff but when he's making his points you kind of want to be like well you want to hear more <laughs> mm -hmm. because he puts a decent intellectual basis for it and and uh, mason's more genteel nature negates him from sounding like a raving loon mm -hmm. even if the actual <laughs> the concepts that you're talking about are these fantastical um, or extreme positions. But the film and its source material is interesting in that he does have a bit of a point, and especially when you realize what the nuclear submarine is using for power, mm -hmm. that's a question that we are still exploring today. That is nuclear power and the dangers that those hold. And it's pretty interesting that a Disney film albeit based on this fantastical subject matter, shares the same kind of threat that uh, a noir film Kiss Me Deadly uh, had. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's working in some sort, of, uh, some sort of very contemporary for the time paranoia, in addition for its look at the past and, the, and it's the past designs on the future. Right, and in addition to all this great spectacle going on, there's really some nice dynamics between uh, Mason's Captain Nemo and Paul Lucas playing Professor Aranax. He has the less showy role of, of all the actors, but when it comes to actually delving into the themes of the movie, their back and forth is, is really interesting. Maybe, though, not as interesting as what happens when you put a wild card like Kirk Douglas in all of this, who is going as big as Kirk Douglas goes, which is, which is pretty big. <laughs> Man, I'm a fan of Kirk Douglas, in, and I love many of his films. But I have to admit, while watching this movie now, knowing his history, I am utterly charmed and enchanted by what he does here. Because what I had said earlier with regards towards being a live-action evocation of a Disney animated movie, 
Kirk Douglas does nothing less than be the live action, dead on live action impersonation of what an animated Disney character is like. You know how like when a Disney character in an animated film is dancing, it's just just so wonderfully animated and rendered how they're spinning, how like for example, Geppetto is dancing, he's spinning around, he's petting Figaro in mid-twist, and he's adjusting some clocks while he's doing it. It's this amazingly coordinated bundle of frenetic activity. And we get the live action version of that as he's playing a guitar and singing a song about the diff- uh, about the different tattoos that he gets and the different <laughs> story on each and it is just a tour de force of physical activity i be Jackie Chan level coordination <laughs> as he's belting this thing out at the top of his lungs a big smile on Douglas's face and he's jumping from one side of the ship to the other climbing the netting leaping off stands and all while not missing a note he's even wearing a cartoon level costume <laughs> yeah. with his uh, where's Waldo uh, striped uh, shirt <laughs> so 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 true. <laughs> um, and, and, and he gets to have a lot of good chemistry with a seal. <laughs> yes. So many of these films where like an actor is trying to play quote unquote against an animal, it's obvious that, that they just do a close-up shot of the animal doing something and a close-up shot of the human reacting and you're meant through the magic of montage to go, okay, <laughs> not here. It's a single shot and and Douglas is giving a full conversation to the seal. The seal's barking as if it's in response. They shake hands. They go from one side of the room to the other. And Kirk Douglas is just perfectly convincing that he's just having a grand time uh, uh, hanging out with this seal. Yeah, there's so much enthusiasm towards the seal and also towards Peter Lorre, whose hair he keeps messing up. And Peter Lorre, in perfect deadpan, just doesn't react except to put his hair right back into place. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm a huge fan of actors such as uh, Jessica Chastain. And I think the ultimate example of it for modern audiences is Woody Harrelson. In other words, actors who, when it comes time for an intense dramatic performance, they can absolutely deliver. But if they star in a movie that has a goofy premise, right. requires them to be silly, <laughs> they will absolutely embrace it. No one has ever loved the prospect of eating a Twinkie more than Woody Harrelson's character in <laughs> Zombieland. And I don't know of any person who's been such a Disney level of enthusiasm and uh, friendship with a uh, uh, friendship with his animal companion uh, more than Kirk Douglas <laughs> and that seal in, right. in that scene. And it's amazing to see an actor who's so known as playing some of the most magnificent bastards in Hollywood history and heroes. Yes, <laughs> but uh, but especially someone who's gotten so intense on that, right. be able to take that and use it for an ultimately very charming burst of energy. He absolutely lights up the screen every time he makes an appearance. And also, for a guy who wasn't a spring chicken, he does a pretty good job of kicking out a submarine window as <laughs> <Right>. well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if I can tell from uh, a lot of uh, the themes from uh, of either Soylent Green or Narrow Margin on Richard Fleischer's style in it, but I will say that the movie does have a grand sense of style. That sense mm-hmm. of adventure that I felt was a little perfunctory in a lot of Treasure Island is not really manifest here. There's a lot of spirit that is de- that is delivered, whether it's through the squid attack or Kirk Douglas or the or the debates on the nature of technology between 
Captain Nemo and the scientist. Some really good humor of both the big grand kind on Douglas and the muted kind on Laurie. <laughs> a very, uh, I agree with you, a very cool job of underplaying by a, ver- by a very distinctive actor. So I think Fleischer did a, a fine job in giving this <laughs> sense of uh, fun and uh, enjoyment out of this picture. And his being there actually comes with a large dosing of irony because Richard Fleischer's father was Max Fleischer, who was Walt Disney's chief competitor in the animation world Ah. back in his early days. So when they were both doing shorts, they were uh, constantly being compared and working uh, for working in the same industry. Mm -hmm. So when Richard Fleischer got the offer to do the job, he was like... uh, you know who my dad is, right? <laughs> and then he had, and then he had to check with his father, and his father's like, "Yeah, take it." <laughs> oh, now I'm going to take a look at looking at the filmography of Disney and see if uh, Chuck Jones's nephew managed to make an appearance <laughs> appear somewhere. <laughs> well, Mel Blanc almost was part of Pinocchio. Is that right? He was going to be the voice of Gideon the Cat in Pinocchio huh. until they decided to make uh, Gideon a mute character. <laughs> How about that? Uh, hopefully not as a result of the, any auditions that Mel Blanc <laughs> would do. Because if you signed on and did a did some voice, and like, you know what, it's better off the, <laughs> if the cat never says anything. <laughs> right. But I, I can't think of another live-action Disney movie in his lifetime with kind of the scale and the scope of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. There's a lot more to come. We're going to talk about another one, but they'll tend to be uh, slightly less ambitious as Disney will once again go back to his specialty of animation. Right. And this one is maybe yet even another phase of his animation techniques when he made Lady and the Tramp, which was released in 1955. In this film, Lady is a loyal cocker spaniel, loved and pampered by her owners, whose idyllic life is disrupted when a new baby becomes the focus of the family. She crosses paths with a wandering mutt named Tramp, whose free spirit and devil-may-care attitude couldn't be more of a contrast to Lady, as puppy love ensues. We're again hitting another uh, technology milestone, because uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was Disney's first live-action widescreen film, and Lady and the Tramp was Disney's first widescreen animated film. Mm. And those animators use every bit of, of that frame. I think you have to go back to Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi to see animation at the level that Disney provides us in Lady and the Tramp, but it's very different from those because it's not a fantasy world. It's not even a real world place as visually rich as a forest. 
It's basically a turn-of-the-century small town based very much on Disney's own hometown where he grew up in Marceline, Missouri. And that, that becomes fascinating in a whole number of ways. One thing that I noticed while watching the film is the wrong side of the tracks type class situation as Lady's uh, home is presented as this very luxurious life of comfort and it's contrasted with the tramp's incredible enthusiasm towards the independent life of mm -hmm. I get to eat in a different place every, every day of the week, for example. These are themes that are familiar in the romantic comedy genre and the entire opposites attract concept where you have the bickering and the, uh, well, these two certainly can't get along until true love finds its way. But I think this is one of the best romantic comedies, not just limited to animation, but romantic comedies in general. You could imagine this scenario being played out with the movie stars of the time. Tramp himself kind of reminds me of a cross between William Holden and Joel McRae. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it. That, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> he has Holden's intelligence and, and wiles to it, but none of Holden's general dickishness towards, <laughs> towards other people. And he has Joel McRae's openness, but with Holden's wit. It's a, Yeah, that's a right. really cool co comparison. And the other thing going on is there's real chemistry between Lady and the Tramp. This is kind of a miracle because there's so many <laughs> romances with two live people that can't <laughs> put this kind of chemistry together. And so you have this combination of animators and voice actors succeeding in something that's actually really difficult in a lot of Hollywood films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a very particular kind of genius of what happens with that uh, with the canine central canine relationship and Lady and the Tramp, and part of the reason I would say it's so particular is because it's got a degree of difficulty in that you're having dogs express a burgeoning romantic relationship. There's obvious limitations because they're not very humanoid dogs, so there's a limited thing they, that they could do, and yet they're growing affection for each other is depicted in a way that none of the prince and princess things right? has really <laughs> been shown. What I mean by that is like when you uh, there's a montage in Cinderella where the prince is showing uh, uh, Cinderella around and it's just simply these wonder lovely places and they're taking a look and well, this place is lovely and this other place is lovely and they're simply there. But in here, when the tramp is showing the lady around the city, you get to see ladies' reactions to different things and, and the tramp's enthusiasm towards pointing this thing out and pointing this thing out. At points, he's suggestive. At points, he's protective. And it's getting these details at, and in a level of caring as opposed to a fairy tale default where these people are fated to be together. Right. So when we're talking about great animation, none of that can happen by accident. Every bit of that is planned to the most minute detail mm -hmm. of expressiveness and character animation. I think the great animated films of Disney's golden age very much call attention to themselves. You're, you're watching those and you're saying, damn, I, I've just never seen animation like that before. 
But when you watch Lady and the Tramp, the quality animation and the quality of the storytelling is so interlocked together that you can actually forget about the animation because you're so drawn into this story. Mm-hmm. This is a case where the animation is not just fluid and has the Disney level on quality, but it's the right animation. The, the way the jowls of the blood of the bloodhound flop away as he's trying to recall something from his ancestor, old reliable, to just the way the Scotty dog literally has almost all vertical movements as he <laughs> yips up and down in anger. They're exactly fit in the personality. And it's also a case where as other characters in Disney films may have just too much personality and it's just so over the top. But here it's the right personality for each character. Like Lady's personality is so wonderfully distinctive from the Tramps, from the Scotty, and from Peggy Lee as a dog from the wrong side of the tracks who uh, sings a song in testament to the Tramp. Now, Peggy Lee's presence here is very interesting because it's part of a, a movement that Disney is going to be using to put more well-known names in their uh, features. Peggy Lee is not that well-known today, probably best for uh, having the, the song uh, Fever. Right. But at the time, she was a pretty big deal, so her presence here would definitely have been noticed by contemporary viewers. The movie is also wonderful at uh, time and place. And the environments, even though they're more realistic than we're generally used to in Disney, are incredibly evocative. The use of shadows, whether it's dogs running down dark uh, streets or a rat trying to attack a baby. When the time comes... For the movie to get suspenseful, when the movie to get exciting, it delivers on that level as well. Mm-hmm. And I think Lady is a really great character. And it's, again, it, the, the degree of difficulty required to make her so fascinating is incredible, is pretty hard. She has to be, because she has to be a creature who's pampered, who has this kind of comfort, and yet she has this curiosity about the world and not appear at all snobbish. Right. She certainly feels like she has a primary place in the household, but anyone who's an old, older sibling can possibly relate to the idea of what happens when a baby comes into the house and you're no longer the center of attention. Mm -hmm. And Lady and the Tramp captures that perfectly. And then you have the other dogs who've kind of seen seen it all and, and, and know that just like, oh, she doesn't know what's coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. Tramps just disdain for the entire lifestyle of being attached to a human. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. A tramp is a great character as well. Somebody who has these just the qualities of of bravery and a ton of charm, but at the same time, he is uh, very much dedicated towards being independent. And so a lot of the changes in the relationship between him and Lady don't necessarily come from the standard romantic comedy thing of some, like, contrivance, let's right. put it this way. It's a result of an honest misunderstanding mm -hmm. of, per of perspective, because Lady just sees things a certain way, and that's different from how the tramp sees things. 
And then it leads to that wonderful and very famous scene in the Italian restaurant with the spaghetti and the meatballs that has become so iconic that it's been uh, spoofed in movies like Hot Shots. Right. I heard that there was, um, I've got a chance to look at some of the behind the scenes materials and the question on what particular food was going to be used towards that dinner was uh, uh, a subject of some debate. <laughs> and uh, spaghetti is was a really interesting choice. I would argue that Animation-wise, that's going to be quite a challenge. <laughs> yeah, but but it leads to the moment of their first kiss, which is absolutely classic. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and um, you got to give credit for the world's most accommodating restaurant staff. Towards, <laughs> I hope they don't have any didn't have any customers in the other side of that restaurant. <laughs> but to your point on the use of darkness and shadow, okay. It's so expressive on its use of light and shadow when characters enter a lighted area um, uh, or descend into a dark area, or notably when the tramp is running into the house and it's in the middle of a storm and there's these shafts where the banister is illuminated, but mm -hmm. then a lightning strike comes in and then you just see the part of the house flashing just for a moment. Yeah. These are just incredibly well done, used on the most basic forms of lighting techniques that you use for conventional non-animated films. And in terms of the animation in general, this may be Disney's most composed film mm -hmm. in terms of the backgrounds. Because the backgrounds... In the earlier films, as great as they are, they also had a lot. They also were benefited by a lot of effects with snow or well, rain and what have you. But here, when the backgrounds are just so lovingly depicted, and it's just some of them are just jaw-droppingly great. Where, like for example, you would have like an areas that are mostly gray, but in a window, it looks like it's illuminating things, but it's not an effect. It's literally, it's painted that well. Right. And so much of the places and scenes that we find in Lady and the Tramp, the backgrounds are just astoundingly lovely and, and uh, are a great backdrop upon which the high-quality animation that brings out their personalities is shown in front of these things. You put the two together, and it's just an amazingly successful on the animation side. It is, and then also on the narrative side. The story works. You would be involved in it no matter how it's presented. I think mm -hmm. this is pretty much Disney's mature masterpiece, and for me, the best film we're going to discuss in this second part. There is something so magic about those early Golden Age films before the war when Disney was revolutionizing the medium and pushing every envelope. So I think it's really hard for any animated film to stand next to Fantasia, Pinocchio, and Bambi. I, th I think they are probably the peak. But if you expand on his career and kind of look at what's going on in the 50s and beyond throughout Disney's life, I think that when you've got a combination of the highest level of animation and the highest level of storytelling, that's hard to beat. So when it comes to this period of Disney, I, I think Lady and the Tramp absolutely is the gold standard. And it's an era that is about to end with Walt Disney's next film, Sleeping Beauty, released in 1959. 
The birth of Princess Aurora would seem to be a happy occasion, but when the evil fairy Maleficent finds she was not on the guest list, she places a curse on the princess. Luckily, she has three good fairies and a prince on hand to try to protect her from Maleficent's deadly attacks. So, is this the El Dorado of princess movies, Brad? <laughs> or more the Rio Lobo? <laughs> because much like uh, Howard Hawks' uh, series of films he started with Rio Bravo, between this, Snow White, and Cinderella, we're very much into the Disney princess story. Yes, and you can't escape the similarities between the three, but there are some differences too. And I think in this case, the difference is very much in the style of the animation. The story beats are very reminiscent of Snow White and Cinderella. And if we talked about Lady and the Tramp being kind of the success of animation elements and story elements, I think Sleeping Beauty is a technical masterpiece while falling short on the narrative end of it. I'm not sure Princess Aurora is a character with enough agency that I could really invest in her as much as I like. So we end up very much our attention drawn to the villain, Maleficent, who is striking both visually and in voice acting and then the uh the three good fairies who are the this movie's comic relief but what's special about this film is kind of a rethinking of animation style mm. and looking at how to depict this environment which the disney artists have done in a way that they haven't approached previously they've pretty much looked at the old, old medieval artwork in which the period was set and combined it with kind of an art deco style in which angles on characters, on uh, places, on everything is just a little more pronounced. We talked about the, the last one being the first widescreen film. Now Disney's working in 70 millimeter. This movie looks gorgeous. Hmm. One way of looking at it is that it is a sort of reversal on the Director's Club concept, because it seems to me that each different princess one is expressive in a different way. Mm -hmm. Maybe it comes from the, uh, the technology and the um, creative forces that were at work just making a different take on a formula each time. Um, I find that like Cinderella is a very bright film. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, with, with the exception of the stairwell where Cinderella lives, there's not a lot of darkness to be had. Even the ride in the the midnight ride of the coach is pretty brightly lit. And this, on the other hand, a lot of scenes could be just a cut from the uh, Dragon's Lair video game because <laughs> it's so cragged and so so with such like odd angles in fact i think it's like the many shots quote-unquote shots are uh, done in a, like a tilted perspective and maleficent herself is just as you said a very fascinatingly angular conceived character i really like how in a, in a touch where ever she teleports she descends into this kind of very strange 
dark icon that then disappears. There's a lot of live action model work in this one, especially hmm. to orient the artists. So somewhere out there, there's footage of an actress basically going through all of Maleficent's motions. And she really does capture something that raises the stakes maybe on the evil queen and Snow White. And then when she transforms into a dragon, that provides an almost unprecedented level of epicness. This is a Disney film where <laughs> I, uh, the biggest comparison that comes to mind is perhaps the legend of Sleepy Hollow in that people remember it for the last 10%. Yeah. But whoa, what the <laughs> hell of an amazing last 10%. Earlier sections are very much following a lot of the formula, especially over in Snow White with the friends to all the animals on the one side, mm -hmm. but and then taking the Fliberty Gibbet type fairy godmother from Cinderella and then saying, well, that was pretty cool. People like that fairy <laughs> godmother. I know. <laughs> Let's do three of them. Right. <laughs> and give them all a different color. Because that way, they, if you want to be really cynical, you can say that it lets you buy three different outfits. <laughs> well, I think they're a definite advance from Cinderella's cat and mouse antics. Another aspect that gives this film so much atmosphere is the score which is actually taken directly from the Tchaikovsky Sleeping Beauty Ballet ah. from 1890. So we're going back to kind of Disney's fascination with classical music mm -hmm. and using actual classical music to move forward a story that it's already associated with. Mm, nice. I, I had completely failed to notice on that, on that legendary piece of music. Maybe I was distracted by the uh, wondering why you decide when Sleeping Beauty has fallen into her slumber, the right idea is to then cause a slumber towards every other person in town. <laughs> <laughs> nor, uh, nor the idea that you get her all the way into the castle and then you just have her pass through a portal, which is <laughs> literally you just, to quote the internet meme, you only had to do one thing. <laughs> um but especially on those final sequence, they all the stops are pulled out. <laughs> and as soon as Maleficent decides, all right, you know what? I'm pulling up my sleeves and the hell of my minions. Mm -hmm. I'll hold my uh, mead. <laughs> I've got this. By the spell she takes, the bridges, the whole bridges are crumbling. Entire forests of brambles are built up in front of the castle to go in and Peter Progress. And her actions as to, cre to create... A gigantic figure of the dragon in that battle, with with complete with a flaming hellscape to which he <laughs> prefers, uh, to which they pursue the prince, is one of the best all time confrontations. I put that right up there with the a monstro at the end of Pinocchio. Yeah, Just, it's it's how to end a movie. They <laughs> absolutely knocked that out of the park. <laughs> exactly. I can't. I cannot agree more on that. So you had mentioned that this is one of the final types of a phase of animation on Disney. This is the end of an era, because as we've mm. talked about through a lot of these animated features, the expense of doing hand-drawn, ink-and-paint, frame-by-frame animation was getting to the point where even though the films were making money, even though they were successful and beloved, 
they were so expensive that they really weren't bringing that much money into the Disney organization. Mm. And so after Sleeping Beauty, there ended up being a rethinking of priorities. And remember also, by this point, Disneyland is open. TV shows are going strong. All the diversification we talked about at the beginning is continuing onward. And the feature animation was becoming kind of a money pit. So from this point forward, through the rest of Disney's life, we're going to be seeing a pulling back on the... I don't want to say the quality of animation, because what's about to come is going Mm -hmm. to have its own quality. But this style of animation is not going to be present in Disney's next film. And that one is 101 Dalmatians, released in 1961. Street, you got to be able to pick out the easy meat with your eyes closed. Then moving silently down. Pongo to Dalmatian is looking for love and find matches for both himself and his owner. Many puppies later, the ever-growing canine crew find themselves in adventures as they try to avoid the clutches of Cruella Deville who thinks they would all make fine spotted fur coats. When you look at 101 Dalmatians, you will immediately notice that something has changed. The difference is obvious not only in that it's a contemporary story taking place with all the familiar elements of contemporary life in 1961, from its cars to the television to the buildings, but what's changed behind the scenes is that the ink and paint process has been replaced by something called xerography, which, as it sounds, is similar to the process of a Xerox machine. Mm -hmm. And so instead of every cell being individually handled, cells are now Xeroxed and repeated with a different art to reflect the the different animation, but backgrounds will often be the same And even though it has its own artistic quality, there's, I think, a richness that is lost in the new process. What I find is that the the process comes across almost as if, like, the initial pencil sketches Mm -hmm. have come to life. And so it's a particularly different kind of, they're just a different kind of animation. At least that's, that's how I feel it, it comes from. Right. It's, it's kind of modern versus classic. Cause the mm-hmm. way the, the backgrounds are fascinating in this because they're, they're almost impressionistic. They almost look like how Van Gogh would approach a background in that they are in no way realistic. They're kind of squiggles meant to represent the uh, a street light or buildings or a room they don't look like an attempt to represent the real object which is what disney has been dedicating his career to doing yes, so right. it, it turns out disney himself was disappointed in this style but 
as mentioned before, it the company determined that it had to go this way in order to uh, keep making the films. Mm -hmm. It really announces itself in the opening credit sequence, which takes the concept of the Dalmatian spots and really runs with it in kind of an abstract way where the credits are interacting with spots in weird ways. Like at one point they be the spot, the dog spots become musical notes mm -hmm. and yes, there's kind of, and there's a, and now there's a jazzy score mm -hmm. going on. So there, they do a good job at announcing this is not your father's Disney movie. For the most part, I think it, I think it works works grandly. Part of that is because I think the personalities that are depicted in these are, uh, while not quite at the level of Lady and the Tramp, they're still really, really strong with a lot of those characters. Like Pongo, the main Dalmatian, <laughs> he is so evoking this mm -hmm. level of particular kind of British ingenuity and uh, appreciation of the frustrating situation that if you've ever seen the films by David Niven, he evokes that <laughs> David Niven kind of sens sensibility in his demeanor. And it's very charming, the whole idea that the, the, do the dogs consider the humans their pets. Exactly. And when Pongo re realizes that his human has no life, that uh, he basically does everything... He does everything he can to uh, set him up in a meat cute and set himself up with a, a nice uh, female Dalmatian. Exactly, exactly. And it's effective at showing the first batch of Dalmatians and differentiating them just enough so you're you're not using like a dwarf level of a characteristic <laughs> for each one of those. So uh, they, they, they don't go that far, but there's enough to go and have some distinction between some of those and one of which is like, this is Disney's maybe first foray into explicit contemporary satire in that what do these puppies like to do is exactly what little kids in that era also like to do is spend way too much time watching television. And there's some pretty cool merriment as you actually see what I believe is some early Disney animated things of flowers moving around in the, in the uh, Steamboat <laughs> Willie style combined with some really cheesy advertisements. Right, they're definitely doing their part in making fun of those early television commercials. And then you have the one Dalmatian who's constantly up with his face against the television set, mm. even to the point where he needs to escape danger at one point, but he's still got his face to the television set. Exactly. <laughs> and it also does a little bit of the Lady and the Tramp uh, attempt to go through a whole lot of other distinctive animal personalities, as when the Dalmatian children are missing, there are uh, a whole lot of other animals from across the countryside are recruited in the uh, in the effort. But unlike the uh, international flavor of Lady and the Tramps menagerie, here we basically have a very British form of uh yes. of dog so every every dog is a different british type <laughs> <laughs> that's uh yes that's so true there is a sheep dog who looks like an old forgotten general who used to help run the british east india tea company <laughs> <laughs> and he has a, a lackey assistant cat who for me comes across like um the um uh, colonel mandrake from uh, dr strangelove and <laughs> in how he's uh forever frantically trying to obey the sheep dog's orders and during one part of their adventure they literally meet with the dog version of a heroic cameo <laughs> as a, a, a collie which looks to all the world like an animated lassie comes right. in and <laughs> and 
even managed to out David Niven Pongo, I feel. <laughs> Probably not an accident, because last year would have been huge at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So it's uh, that's an interesting case of uh, of a dog superstar, <laughs> of a dog superstar reference. Uh, the per- and the personality thing extends to the uh, villains as well. These there's these two bungling crooks who I found incredibly charming, uh, Jasper and Horace. Mm-hmm. One uh, following the standard comedy mold. One's a uh, one's a squat guy who. Uh, uh, who is always after uh, the n- another meal to eat, and every moment you cut to him eating, it's a completely different food item <laughs> to, to the point that like uh, I had a laugh out loud when it cuts to a po- cuts to him, and he somehow found a way to get an entire pink frosted birthday cake. <laughs> <laughs> And Jasper, his skinny compatriot, I found to be great fun. This is a case where Disney did a really nice accommodation because they were not able to do animation to such a gigantic degree in as the earlier films, but they smoothed it out and muted it so that they have a particular kind of British low-key sensibility mm-hmm. in how they approach their caper. They're just these lowlifes who just got clearly wrung up here, and they're not experts. And uh, and Jasper in particular is great about how he will expend as little effort as absolutely necessary. Right. And there's a particularly fun moment where uh, they're in an old house, and uh, there's these there's a crack that forms that uh, reaches towards the ceiling and Jasper just calmly looks over at this uh, ceiling piece that falls is falling on Horace's head and just calmly crosses his legs as, as Horace just gets clobbered. <laughs> yeah, they reminded me a bit of a combination of Abbott and Costello and uh, all the goons from the Lady Killers. Oh, nice! <laughs> but uh, but I, I know yeah. that you that, that the, you you got a lot of enjoyment from these characters, and, and that's great. That different things hit us in different ways. That didn't reach me, the, these two guys. They struck me as kind of the standard comic relief villains that there's a version of in almost all these films. So what what you find found special kind of went a bit over my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I certainly could not help but notice the prominence of one Cruella de Vil. Yes. Not only because uh, she gets her own theme song, mm-hmm. uh, written ri- <laughs> written as a, a as a mockery towards her by our uh, main human, mm-hmm. but who decides mm-hmm. to express his disdain towards her with a whole succession of musical instruments. And exactly. I thought that scene I found really enjoyable. <laughs> and she is an iconic villain. She eventually was played in live action by Glenn Close. She is. Weird looking. Talk about angular. She, her face has more angles than most uh, entire characters. Yeah, well, you were talking about impressionists. <laughs> that her face might start to rival some Picassos. <laughs> <laughs> and she's always followed by a uh, a stream of green smoke wherever because she's smoking everywhere she goes. Mm-hmm. But oh boy, is she a lot to take? She is one of these constantly screaming villains. Mm-hmm. And so my feeling with her was a little bit of Corella DeVille went a long way. <laughs> I'm a little more uh, uh, enthusiastic towards uh, Mrs. DeVille, even though, like as I said earlier, she's definitely on the side of most acting versus best <laughs> acting on that scale. 
but she's such a unique creation. Incredibly skinny and yet having this monstrously poofy fur coat mm-hmm. to that to the just anti-mame on crystal meth way. She's waving her uh, uh, cigarette lighter and extender around and casting this absolutely evil green smoke everywhere to the fact her cheekbones are straight up two triangles <laughs> affixed on either side of her head. Even her car is as angular and out of control as she is. Right. And with the limitations of the new process, you got to give the animators all the credit because the character animation is still strong. All the, the dogs are still really expressive. And like you said, there's some really well-rendered action sequences. Mm-hmm. My main criticism of the film, and, and for me it's a, it's, it's a pretty major one, is that it is just too long. Every bit of antic, whether it be from the puppies to the villains uh, to to the main couple, beats are repeated over and over again. Sequences stretch out almost interminably. You've got enough good ideas for uh, a strong short that would end up in a package movie, and... They just repeat and repeat and repeat. I do see what you mean in that it does go on maybe a half beat to a beat too often in scene after scene after scene. So it does feel a little bit more dragged out as a result. But I think even if it's a step below Lady and the Tramp, it's expression of personality through animation and then making the most out of an even more limited set of resources once again produces quite a winner for me. All right, so uh, we will now check in with what's going on in the live-action department, and we'll skip over uh, one of Disney's most famous tearjerkers, Old Yeller from 1957, also about a dog, Ah. and go into a film that we're going to kind of utilize to represent all of Disney's live-action comedies. It's The Absent-Minded Professor, released in 1961. McMurray plays the title absent-minded professor who has missed for the third time his wedding with his colleague Betsy. The reason being a scientific breakthrough of an invention called Flubber, a rubber-like energy source that defies gravity and can make everything from a Model T to a school basketball team fly. Disney returns to the well of science and its misuse that he had introduced (laughs) with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. A little bit of a drop-off from Jules Verne, to say the least. Just, but there there seems to be kind of uh, two types of Disney comedies. Uh, One is uh, animals that can uh, talk or are otherwise more intelligent than you would expect. And the other is 
things flying and being able to move about without uh, the help of uh, normal physics. So mm-hmm. this uh, falls into the latter category, and it's a children's film. And, and I think we can distinguish between the idea of a family film, which is what just about all of Disney's uh, animated output is, and films like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Mm -hmm. Treasure Island. Yes. Films that may be geared towards younger viewers, but can be enjoyed by everyone. Mm -hmm. But when I see something like The Absent-Minded Professor and a lot of movies very much like it, I can remember watching it as a kid and enjoying it then at that level, but not feeling now with a rewatch that it it can speak to me as an adult. Mm -hmm. Let me put this in a very particular kind of way. Kirk Douglas's performance in 20,000 Leagues was so thrilling because it had the exact level of energy and vibrancy that that Disney had in his finest animations. Mm Mm-hmm. The Absent-Minded Professor does the similar thing in the exact opposite direction. Because the best way I can describe the acting is if every one of the characters was dressed as a cartoon character that you would see promoting an event at a shopping mall. (laughs) And they're told to act in a way so that you would not miss a single thing of their performance. There is no need to concentrate on their faces. Right. (laughs) (laughs) There's no confusion over what's happening because... In addition to being incredibly obviously physically expressed, they will then tell you what they're doing (laughs) as well. And please don't notice that Fred McMurray is far too old to be playing this role. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the experiments have got to him. (laughs) Right. Actually, there's a a fun quirk about Fred McMurray in that this is actually kind of a, a typical Fred McMurray role. Fred McMurray, through however many dozens or a hundred films he's made, ah. uh, generally plays the amiable, nice family man or good guy uh, in, mm-hmm. in a family film. But most of us don't know him from those roles. Most of us haven't seen a lot of those films. What, he, what we have seen are the three films that he was in where he played a complete heel. And those are his (laughs) memorable performances. So Double Indemnity, The Kane Mutiny, and The Apartment. That's the Fred McMurray stuff that goes down in history where he's just this this awful person. Yet meanwhile, he's got all these other films where he's just an amiable nice guy. (laughs) That's a a fun point. In that way, he may have very well one-upped the career path of Leslie Nielsen, who is not known through dozens and dozens of roles of playing absolutely personality-free squares, <laughs> having considerably less personality than the robot and the invisible monster in Forbidden Planet, to take one example. <laughs> and yet, he's had such a great other career by being so funny in the Zucker Abram Zucker films, make a par- ironically by parrying that very character. Right. But <laughs> Rick Murray may have done him one better in b- providing such nasty characters as uh, in the K-Mutiny, in Double Indemnity, and I would say in The Absent-Minded Professor. 
Oh, you find, you find them a bit nasty. There is some things in here that will come across as quite reprehensible, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially to today's audiences. Uh, there is a scene where, for example, once he finds that he can take his car and use it to fly around, he decides that a thing to do is to terrorize his romantic <laughs> rifle by continually slamming on the hood of his car and, and causing a front-end collision with a police car. Right. <laughs> uh, a front-end collision where both cars are lifted up off the ground. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> And there's just a moment where he is trying to help the team win a game by taking this flubber substance and putting it on shoes, and he needs to replace the shoes. And so you get this sustained two minutes, which is just shots, of Fred McMurray wandering around a teenage boy's locker room. Taking their gym shoes, which, (laughs) I'm sorry, but out of context, is just nine kinds of wrong, man. Well, 1961 was a far more innocent time. Yes, to be sure, to be sure. (laughs) And so the the set pieces of the film, and to the extent that I think anyone is going to find any enjoyment out of it, is uh, scenes like the basketball game where uh, the home team is losing horribly because their star player is injured, Mm -hmm. but then once they get the flubber on their shoes, they could leap the entire range of the court Mm -hmm. and jump up into the rafters and score basket after basket after basket. If if you are the kind of person who uh, likes the part of the movie where the referee says... There's nothing in the rule book that says a monkey can't play baseball. <laughs> if you go, hey, that's cool. <laughs> let's see what. Let's see where this goes. That's this is what absent-minded professor uh, does for the most part. So you you were not impressed by the flying jalopy. <laughs> the flying jalopy. Looking at that now, it would have been very easy for that to have been just incredibly shoddy. But even though this is very clear on a limited budget, and the basketball scenes are very, very, very goofy. Uh, no, the jalopy scenes were actually, they, they hid the wires quite well, and not just in the scenes where they had the jalopy flying at night either. Mm-hmm. That was rendered fairly decently. And I think that's a good point on the budget, because this yeah. is in black and white. It looks like not a lot of money was spent on it, and I think that probably was the dynamic in the studio, is that the comedies got the least amount of attention. Oh, definitely. There is a, um, a concept that Roger Ebert had crystallized in, in words, called The Idiot Plot, whereby if anyone in a movie would stop acting like an idiot for just one moment and just describe something accurately, the the movie would end because the problem would have been resolved. This is a a very big case of the flustered scientist version of this. (laughs) Right. So while I didn't really relish watching The Absent-Minded Professor, uh, I'm at least heartened that by watching that, we were able to avoid that darn cat. This is a a very representative sample, so if you're curious on films like The Million Dollar Duck or The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes or The Invisible Kid, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a very good example on it. But as we're going to discover next, when Walt Disney combines live-action comedy with animation, the results might be quite different. Thank you. 
Mary Poppins, released in 1964. The Banks' children live in an affluent but stifling household, with parents who are so involved in their own affairs that they hire a series of nannies to raise young Jane and Michael. Their newest nanny, Mary Poppins, is a little bit different, boasting supernatural powers, for one thing, and she and the jack-of-all-trades named Bert take the children on adventures and try to help them connect with their distracted parents. There are a number of factors that I think uh, put this well above the pack as far as late Disney goes, and very, very far above the pack as far as live-action Disney goes. <laughs> Probably the main thing is that this was Walt Disney's last dream project. He had been wanting to do Mary Poppins for decades, and it was a passion project for him, as famously dramatized in the recent movie Saving Mr. Banks, which is really good and gives a fun view of backstage at the Disney Empire. Mm. It goes into detail about how he wanted to get the rights to Mary Poppins from its author, P.L. Travers, who was very protective about her property and maybe a little stuffy about uh, how she viewed the process of uh, adaptation from book to film. Mm. So it was quite the struggle for Walt Disney to get her to agree to finally allow him to make this film of her work. Now, I haven't read the book, so how many dancing penguins and uh, people firing cannons off ships are there in... Well, I am getting most of my information from the uh, the Tom Hanks, Emma Thompson movie, okay. so take it with a grain of salt, but a very distinctive point was made that she did not want there to be dancing penguins or anything of that kind of whimsy. <laughs> she took the uh, she took the character very seriously and did not want songs and did wow. not did not really want Disney stuff involved. So okay. it became a very complicated negotiation. Mm, that does sound like a really fascinating subject for a movie in in that we've already talked about certain films where that doesn't quite match the source material because Disney is amazingly creative in certain ways and mm -hmm. is enthusiastic in certain things. But the author of Peter Pan was interested in something in different kinds of even magic and whimsy, as is the Lewis Carroll in Alice in Wonderland. So when you're dealing with somebody who was a lot more proper and a lot less whimsical, that's an even, an even more interesting adaptation. The other aspect that, for me, elevates this is bringing the Sherman brothers on board as the house songwriters for Disney. The Sherman brothers have already provided a number of songs for a number of, of movies prior to Mary Poppins, but they were usually one or two songs in the film. Mary Poppins, though, is a straight-up musical. And for my money, once the Sherman brothers are, are brought on board, the level of the music just skyrockets. And I know that When You Wish Upon a Star and Hi Ho are classics, but for me, these Sherman brothers songs take it to another level. 
They wanted to go and give this the musical treatment. And by that, I mean the capital M musical that's the kind that will show up on a marquee on a Broadway type stage. Yeah, it, it eventually became a Broadway musical, and it's right that it did. There's <laughs> there's a difference between a musical structure and a movie that has songs. So the, the general Disney formula is put about five songs in there at particular places, depending on the quality of the songs and depending on the film, mm-hmm. they'll either become classics or not. But that's kind of different than structuring an entire set of songs as a through line in your narrative, which is what at this point musicals like from uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein to West Side Story uh, to all the old classics had been doing by 1964 when this came out. And Mary Poppins goes that extra mile to make sure that happens. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm very glad you brought that up because I am going to just admit a, a bias here is that I'm not a fan of live action musicals. And I was thinking about that in terms of Disney's work, and which several of the films we talked about that I really enjoy, such as even Fantasia, obviously, they have music as intrinsic, mm-hmm. and yet I was don't react to them in the way that I was reacting to Mary Poppins. And I had thought it was that animation gives you the freedom to think of anything as possible. And I have a very particular kind of uncanny valley when mm-hmm. it comes to musicals, which is that if... I'm watching a film and the person singing a musical piece, but they're on stage or they're demonstrating a new song to someone. In other words, it's something that some a human being would do naturally. Right. And it's great. I'll roll <laughs> with it. And in fact, it can even get to Elvis levels of choreography and so on. If you just say, oh, I'm just here to do a performance mm-hmm. or, or it fits in terms of some level on reality. But the kind of stuff where just people are uh, trying to clean house and then they start singing, um, that just wears me out. And I, <laughs> I react, I, I, and I, it, it just pushes me and pushes me away. But it's cool that you point out that this is fundamentally different than even those earlier films. In that the musical pieces form the structure of the story, not as additions right. to a usual narrative thing. <laughs> so it is of a different piece. It's interesting, your, your particular bias is one that was shared by many at the very beginning of the musical format, because hmm. musicals of the, the 30s, and, and I, even I think through the early 40s, were all that kind of let's put on a show musicals where performances were the excuse for songs to happen. Mm-hmm. And then I believe it was with Showboat and Oklahoma that this changed to what ended up being more the uh, the norm of modern musicals starting in, in, in the late 40s through today. Hmm. Now, being that you're not into that kind of thing, I could see where Mary Poppins and movies like that are, are going to be problematic because it's doing just that. Now... My bias is the reverse. Mm. I adore musicals. I think it it is a genre that has given me much joy throughout my life. And 
I'm not at all bothered by that particular unreality. In fact, I'm just uh, completely enamored with it. So. Okay. <laughs> and and, and the idea, this feeling of complete enamorment, obviously people can feel that on on all sorts of films, including many Disney ones. And, and whereas in a lot of cases it feels natural for me, the other thing that gets me on, on Mary Poppins is, is I kind of feel that, like, the fanciful whimsy is sort of kind of being shoved down my throat. And and they're adding uh, not just a spoonful, but maybe a, a half a carton of sugar and <laughs> letting it go, making sure the stuff gets down. <laughs> uh, and and on, top of, and on top of all that, it's uh, of a very particular kind, I feel anyway, which is... You know how they say in a Wes Anderson movie, a Wes Anderson film is twee, in that it's it's so precious and everything. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, just so. But this one actually is does a little of that, I feel, but in a British way. I think it might be a tweed movie. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's just so darn British, with one notable exception, which kind of weirds the whole thing out. But, but we'll get to that. We, we will get to that. But, but here, I think that Mary Poppins actually has an internal antidote to all that whimsy, which is Julie Andrews' performance as Mary Poppins herself, because she's actually not really having it, as there's whimsy all around her, some of which she has created through her magic. She's got this reserved kind of stern demeanor, this, um, it's still very British, as you mentioned, yeah, but it it's an interesting, I think this is something that was brought over from the books and maybe P.L. Travers would have approved of, mm. is, is, that, is that she has this distance from what's going on. And th- this almost leads to a bit of a, of a dark side, because I'm watching this, I'm thinking, well, okay, so really Mary Poppins is a witch. Okay, yeah. She's a good witch, but looking at Julie Andrews' performance... I don't think there's. It would take that much to push her push her over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, uh, some very enterprising person had uh, gone in in this direction. They've made a a recut trailer involving scenes from Mary Poppins. <laughs> I think uh, termed "Scary Mary," I believe, right. <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> does paint quite a scary picture. So, uh, really, just showing how effective you can uh, both how effective it is that, to edit to make something presented, and also how absolutely fake. Well, the editing of most trailers can be well, in also terms of representing you, a real story. Yes, and also its use of music because the the trailer you're referring to puts horror movie music mm-hmm. onto the visuals of of Mary Poppins. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of weird moments even just within the film, like her look at admiring herself in the mirror and uh, yeah. and the tape measure that reveals she is practically perfect in every way. Mm-hmm. To her uh, summoning up a windstorm to remove all her uh, competing nannies. Right. <laughs> right. I see what you mean with regards on Julie Andrews, uh, especially since Julie Andrews herself is a, a big fountain of whimsical charm in her other big role. I am talking, of course, about SOB, but also in the sound of, but also in the sound of music, she does that too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And she's so whimsical and the temptation could have been very apparent towards indulging in that whimsy in the sense of, oh my, aren't we having just the most glorious fun at all times? And while I feel that is happening in a lot of things in the movie, it isn't from Julie Andrews. She's 
still maintains this very stern and serious countenance no matter what crazy stuff happens. Right. And there's also some really interesting thematics going on that ground the film for me. Interesting choice of words, seeing how easy people get aloft in this film. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's really dealing with a lot of interesting family dynamics and the idea of the bank as a symbol of a a patriarchal power structure Mm. that affects both the society and the family with the domineering presence of Mr. Banks. That's a very cool, that's a very cool aspect that, that I hadn't even considered because first off their name is Banks. So obviously there's some (laughs) sort of idea on the, on maintaining their position there, but also the banks are all full of, not just uh, old men, but they all uh, they all have a common father. Oh, you mean the Dick Van Dyke's other character yeah. in, in the film? Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. right. That's right. <laughs> a much better performance, by the way. <laughs> we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah, we're getting to it. <laughs> but that theme also then leads to what I think is an incredibly touching musical number, Feed the Birds, with Jane Darwell from The Grapes of Wrath, in ah. her last role as the bird woman sitting on the steps of the cathedral. Poverty is recognized here. On the one side, you do have this lure of the bank. And on the other side, you have this idea of good works, which could also be looked at as uh, Mrs. Banks' interest in the, the suffragette movement. Mm. But uh, one of my favorite mm. uh, YouTube reviewers, Lindsay Ellis, uh, referred to Mary Poppins as socialism curious. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that I had absolutely missed until I saw uh, the movie again for this podcast. I had saw it when I was much younger, and much like how... Um, People remember the last 10 minutes of Sleeping Beauty and the last one minute of Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> I would remembered all the incredibly whimsy stuff, and it was while watching it now that I realized that the the animated penguins and so and uh, and oh look my uh, um, carousel horse wins the derby <laughs> thing is in the first half, right? and in the second half <laughs> just settles down to deal in the father's issues a way more than I had appreciated beforehand. He has his own singing, in fact, to point out his own situation. That is uh, an interesting slant upon his character. Yeah, it's it's this basic war for the minds and souls of these children. And whether this old-fashioned family structure is going to stand or if they will allow their imagination to make them freer people. Mm-hmm. Yes, I totally see what you're saying, in the, and I get the value of such an exploration. That The exploration aspect of it is a cool thing to give a solid plus on this film. To me, it kind of just doesn't quite resolve to it. I have to admit that my first impression had colored me to the idea that mm-hmm. it was just a cross between... Oh, just lighten up pops on the one side (laughs) and an incredibly tweed version of the uh, Cats in the Cradle song by Harry Nilsson. (laughs) And so that's what's interesting when I saw it this time 
is that there's a decent amount of a decent amount of expression going to what is the purpose of the bank? Well, the banks, and it's like the Jimmy Stewart's uh, big speech to all the people in. Bedford Falls, when they're looking for a run of the bank in It's a Wonderful Life. It's like, the, but the money does this. It builds this. It creates this. And, and so you see the, at least what had enticed these people to be hanging around their boardroom always thinking about money. Right. And then there's a nice mm-hmm. little turn as then they just start getting a little more obsessive about the different monetary products. Right down to the rather obvious thing of stealing money from a little kid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the guy that just tips the, tips the scales on there. Um, uh, I also find that uh, the movie does a little bit of a mild cheat in saying, uh, let's go let's go fly a kite is, is phenomenally on the nose, uh, yet also completely doesn't acknowledge that uh, kite flying is not going to put any uh, food on the table. <laughs> That's why I was also, I was charmed this time by when, when, oh, Mary Poppins must go. The wind is changing. Yeah, yeah, the wind that's blowing to someone who can pay you. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, then, the, then right. uh, one, of the, one of the other bankers says, oh, you get your job back. It's all fine. There's like 30 seconds left in the movie. <laughs> yeah, they, they do allow for a happy ending, but a little bit of a dark one when you realize that Mr. Banks basically killed the bank owner by telling <laughs> his joke. <laughs> yes. So so what I'm hearing from you, though, is that you appreciated the film when it diverted from the whimsy and went into other directions or commented on it, but the actual whimsy you were not enjoying. Mm, oh, yes. <laughs> I was. The way that characters are born aloft is like they're just kind of being floating or being inflated, mm-hmm. and that's a feeling that I felt. I felt that someone was trying to go and inflate my soul to get it right. <laughs> get it uh, aloft. And, and I wish this film, and I seriously think this film would be 50% better if there was no animated things in it whatsoever. Which is interesting because we, we had agreed that the one saving grace of Song of the South was its transition scene to animation. Mm-hmm. And I think the the animated live-action combo here has technically advanced from that time. It's silly. It's supposed to be silly, but I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. And a chance to hear a song like Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, one of the earliest songs in my memory. There is rarely a word that so better describes by its very existence <laughs> the idea of trying too hard to be whimsical than supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> that kind of pegs exactly my issue. That's well, kind of weird. Unlike Julie Andrews, and I won't attempt to say it backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you have the big live-action numbers, most of which are led by uh, Dick Van Dyke's Burt character, and what I think is the great chimney sweep scenes where you get this really strange view of dirty London from the rooftops mm. uh, among what I consider some excellent music. When you bring up the, the idea of the chimney sweeps leaping out of the, and, and all coalescing on the rooftops in their dance, a comment you made earlier about Mary Poppins is right on the edge of darkness is if you know, if that really happened, if you were really on a rooftop and then 50 chimney sweeps started leaping up and they all started dancing, that's kind of scary. Well, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> no, 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 I, I kind of 
going to try to stay away yeah. from this. I stay away from situations where that might happen. Right. <laughs> uh, yes, and then it's interesting in a film about, called named Mary Poppins, where Mary Bear has a strong presence of Mary Poppins, but Bert's kind of, at very least, a co-equal character, and he might be a main one. Well, Mary Poppins, as I mentioned before, is kind of a distancing character. She is moving the action forward, and there is this kind of reserved love between her and the children, but because it's so reserved, and because she's never going to let you in to how she's really feeling and, and kind of her inner workings, you need an audience surrogate character. And that's mm. where Dick Van Dyke's Bert comes in. First of all, he provides a lot of the musical oomph to it because he's a song and dance man. He provides a lot of the comic relief because he's one of the great comedians of the period. And that reserve that I see and actually now appreciate more on, on Julie Andrews stuff. It's, makes it all the more reserved, nuanced, and more appreciative when I see the just the mugworthy, <laughs> continuous gallivanting of Mr. Van Dyke. While not approaching Jerry Lewis levels, thank God, he does not really miss too many opportunities to bulge out his eyes, jut out his chin, put out this gigantic horse-level grin at, uh -huh. <laughs> to show how damn delightful what he's witnessing is, is and just dancing, dancing, dancing up a storm. <laughs> what, what about that accent? Okay. <laughs> that, that accent is so curious. Because there's so many things that I see in this film that just come across as like, okay, only in England. Like, just the, the, the chimney sweeping kind of thing. Although, of course, it could ha would happen in American older times, too. But the, the, the charm of it, for let's put it that way. The constant references to governor. The delight in having tea. Mm -hmm. and, and so on. And, and the old Horatio Nelson wannabe on the rooftop. You put all this... And then you have a guy who puts up the fakest accent since the Lucky Charms accent done by Orson Welles and Lady from Shanghai. So you were trying all this appreciation, and then you put this in? To harken back on Dumbo, one of the things, the criticisms of the crows in Dumbo mm -hmm. were that the main crow was voiced by a white person affecting... Right. So I just got to ask, isn't it a little bit similar to just have... This guy doing this cockney nonsense? It's an, a, a ghastly approximation of how a British person would really speak? It is not. Okay. Because, <laughs> be, right. because the, the, the cultural baggage present in the African-American experience is not, does not exist in the American-British dichotomy. As it ends up, the accent is is completely ridiculous, and and mm -hmm. I think the movie is even more charming for that because it's so over the top and wrong and just strange that it gives his character it makes his character really unforgettable if everything else he is doing isn't already doing that. You're gonna leave that theater remembering that accent. But the result on it for me is that is that it makes him even more of a mystically supernatural character than Mary Poppins herself. Because while he does nothing mm -hmm. actively supernatural, 
he just is a worse fit for that world than Mary Poppins is. <laughs> like if he if he ripped off his mask on his face to realize he's a he's a the judge doom of of singing chimney sweeps, <laughs> I for one would not have been a bit would not have been a bit surprised. There's another aspect to his role, which is that, that he is the one who is childlike. Yes. That he is encouraging right. the children to embrace their inner child, which is also their outer child in, that, yeah, in their yeah, case, yes, that's right. but as a strong contrast to the stuffiness of their father. Mm, yeah, there is, there is a little of that. But then there's also he's imparting certain like life lessons about em- emphasizing with the lower class in the chim chim tree mm-hmm. um, uh, transversal um, uh, with the kids. And then he, there's a moment at the, near the end where he is in a discussion where, with um, uh, the father and is doing this interesting passive-aggressive type wordplay uh-huh. to go, well, I'm, I'm just a ch- look, I'm just a chimney sweep governor, but uh, it seems to me that, and I just felt, well, I guess they let the British version of Wilson from Tool from the uh, uh, Tim Allen show loose to just <laughs> just drop in and give his benevolent advice all across this town. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, so we're we're not going to end up agreeing on Bert or a lot a lot of elements of, of this film, but I think hopefully we have explained how maybe different mindsets are going to react differently to what I think is a wonderful film and what you think might be somewhat less so. And I haven't seen it yet, but rumor has it there was a sequel released just last year. <laughs> <laughs> which I actually really, really want to see. Uh, 90% of which is because Mary Poppins is depicted by Emily Blunt. And I am a massive fan of the Blunt and will <laughs> check her out in any type of film. Very cool. So another project I briefly want to mention because it's a project that uh, sadly Walt did not live to see the conclusion of was his vision for another beloved character, Winnie the Pooh, from the children's books by A.A. Milne. And what he wanted to do with this character was kind of a return to the old package films and create three short films and incorporate them into a feature. So he did get to produce one short during his lifetime, uh, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree in 1966, but he passed before they could complete the other two shorts. So eventually the Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh was released in 1977, well, well after his death, but it was another example here at the very end of his life of a Disney creation taking on a life of its own and a world that is still popular today, as we just saw in the uh, Christopher Robin film that uh, came out last year. Ah, it's a shame he couldn't finish it, but still, it, we're glad that we did get a rendition of the process because both the subject matter and the style that it's depicted in literary terms is a very good fit for the kind of xerographic process that Disney was doing in Dalmatians. Right.
so now we have reached the last film made in Disney's lifetime. The Jungle Book, released in 1967. Mowgli, left as a baby in the jungles of India, is a child raised by wolves and mentored by a panther named Bedgira, who knows he must one day return to the man village. But Mowgli wants to stay among the animals, making friends with a gregarious bear named Baloo and enemies with a fearsome tiger, Shere Khan. This is going to sound harsh, but... One film too many. It's not a case where he just he was on a descent and this just crossed it. But I do feel that this was one that uh, is significantly in many, several ways less than the standards of quality he'd already and dedication to quality, importantly, that he did in his earlier films. What brings you to that conclusion? Well, one reason I think on that is that the film does something that I, as an animation fan, find quite unforgivable, which is that it reuses whole pieces of animation. Not a matter of, like, copying a single picture or just copying a single movement, but whole gags are shown in the exact same way because it's just using the exact same animation. And to me... That's one of the grossest examples of hack work, akin to like what is the na- what I think is the nadir of cartoon making in the U.S. Late period Hanna Barbera. <laughs> like you've seen the the joke about how when on the Flintstones they'd be walking to give this illusion that something's actually happening, and they would walk by the same drugstore and uh, bowling alley over and over and over again, and to see somebody who would who in so many films had dedicated towards making sure that each detail was just right to have him use the exact same footage to do the exact same gag or moment is incredibly dispiriting as far as i'm concerned if you can't and show something new or draw something new don't put it in your movie so it's a Really sad to see that decision being made for scenes in The Jungle Book. Well, I myself found The Jungle Book to be an absolute joy. But I don't think that means you don't have a a valid point about what's going on in the animation department. Because as we discussed with 101 Dalmatians, the xerography process was needed to keep costs down and... Things like repeating some backgrounds is not unprecedented. Mm-hmm. It's being used a little bit more here. You're right. When you compare the Jungle Book to something like Bambi, also taking place in the wilds, you could see a definite difference in detail. But the thing about the Jungle Book is its strength lies elsewhere. Its strength is not really in atmosphere or overall beauty, but in developing incredibly vibrant and robust characterizations through animation. So given those restrictions, there's still an incredible amount of creativity going into how these characters are being used, how they're interacting. When you see scenes with Ka the snake, there's all kinds of 
pretty insane contortions that he gets himself into. And I basically don't notice that those things that were bothering you, not because Mm -hmm. I don't see that they're there, but because I'm so involved in these bigger than life personalities that are enchanting me that I'm, I, I I'd rather pay attention to that. And then to put the icing on the cake, we've got the Sherman brothers back again with what I think are the best set of songs in any Disney animated feature. And in the number I want to be like you, I think is the best piece of music in any Disney film. Ah, if you respond on music, the bare necessities thing is is presented in itself as quite a showstopper. And I will absolutely grant you that Baloo is a case where if Mm. you literally had just the limited amount of money and you were going to spend it on just one piece of animation, then that's a case of money well spent because Baloo is one of the Disney characters who has just an abundance of personality in his bouncing frame. And I should mention, though, that uh, The Bare Necessities is the one song that is not written by the Sherman Brothers. There was Mm. a kind of a previous version of the film where the music was made by uh, Terry Gilkison, and The Bare Necessities ended up being the one number that was the holdover from that earlier version, And but happily they did, because it is an incredibly catchy, incredibly fun song. Mm -hmm. And then the animators have a ball with it as he's wandering around snatching bananas in mid-tune splashing away and uh as uh, him and Mowgli just go off a waterfall i'd add that the uh the the i want to be just like you is maybe even more of the traditional sense of a showstopper in that all the monkeys are joining in on the fun and they're providing a chorus on mm-hmm. things so um it's it's a bit of a charm, and and the person playing King Louis was himself named Louis, right? L- Louis. Louis, Louis Prima, a very prominent swinging jazz man of the era, with his own big fan base, and uh, he's the guy that inspired David Lee Roth to cover just a gigolo, <laughs> and so oh, wow. So Disney gave uh, Louis Prima a lot of leeway in how in how he recorded that song, and so what we see on screen is pretty much an animated result of Louis Prima and his uh, band going to town. And that's really interesting in that as Disney's career has gone on, he's relied more and more on getting in names outside of the Disney umbrella. Never more so than in The Jungle Book, because you also have Phil Harris, who also has a name in the whole swing world Hmm. and as a uh, a showbiz kind of guy at the time. And from the other end of things, George Sanders is voicing Shere Khan, the Uh tiger, with his deep, gravelly, sarcastic uh, voice and, and lends some real oily villainy to that. When you think about it, this is maybe one of the more celebrity-filled um, uh, versions. It was almost way more celebrity-filled than even that, mm. because when it came time to bring four buzzards into the film, they had the idea, as the production was in the mid-60s, to make the four buzzards pretty much the Beatles. 
And so if you look at the design, they've got mop tops and they're, they're yeah. speaking in uh, Liverpudlian accents. They made an effort to get the Beatles involved, but it, it did not go very far. They were not interested in lending their voices to animation. Hmm, now, see, wow, now that's really, really interesting in a whole number of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, for one thing, having Walt Disney go after the Beatles may seem really charming to us today, but this is a film from 1967, and pursuing the Beatles was kind of like a Disney film today, bringing in a rap star with a tattoos on his face to be in your film. I'm, I'm serious. Like, look at the absent-minded professor, and if that devil music by that crazy rock and roller Buddy Holly was to make an appearance, that they would have burned that town to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> this is the and this is the kind of environment which had, was going to have the Beatles, huh? And so it makes me really wonder what made what made Disney go to such an adventurous move. I which I think would right. was adventurous at the time. It, it may have had to do with uh, the Beatles being the biggest thing in the universe at the time (laughs) right right and to play off on that though is that i don't know how much connected this is to beatlemania but maybe at the time there was a little bit of british mania now Mm -hmm. america has a particular peculiar relationship with britain there seems to be an altogether unhealthy obsession with what the uh princes and princesses are doing uh, to in england to this day and if you notice, at, maybe it's just a coincidence of the films we're talking about, but there is a more Britishizing thing going on uh, over the last couple films, such as the Mary Poppins right. subject, obviously, the setting of 101 Dalmatians, and in fact, the stuffy British colonel in the army situated in India... <laughs> Also makes an appearance as a as an elephant in the Jungle Book. You know, it wasn't called the British Invasion for nothing, <laughs> because in addition to the Beatles, the Stones, and the Who revitalizing rock and roll in the mm-hmm. states, James Bond was also huge at this time. Mm. And yeah, I, I think you, you're you've absolutely hit upon it. Uh, the early to mid '60s is a time when swinging London had this place in people's imagination now the disney folks would probably focus less on the swinging part of it but <laughs> unless it's unless it's like new orleans jazz like louis prima right or but, or, or the vines used by his monkey army <laughs> right but certainly when you're talking about 1964 through 1966 the the period of uh, pre-production and production of this film it it was culturally unavoidable but there was a sense in which disney didn't want to go too far because even after they couldn't get the beatles involved they had the sherman brothers compose a song called we're your friends and it was going to be performed in a beatlesque style Mm. now this was apparently a bridge too far because at some point uh the edict came down well we're not going to do that let let's make it a barbershop quartet instead ah <laughs> uh, okay hmm it's really fascinating to see that the british invasion made it to cross to the shores of disneyland mm-hmm. and on that it gets me to wonder on how this film and the other films we were ta- we talked about drew in influences 
from the world around them. And I want to go and harken back to another reason why I find this movie deficient is in comparison with how it approached the world in Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. Like, Pinocchio had this these notions of the hard scrabble kind of existence. Even the cricket had his shoes getting messed right. up. And I find that those things were not very evident in Jungle Book. To go back just a little bit, uh, in terms of what you described, the animation and personality, I do agree that when it comes to certain characters, they spent the effort incredibly well. And there's a wonderful gag that I noticed on when the snake is uh, uh, threatening the, the panther, and the most of his body gets pushed off, causing him to fall on the ground. Then he tries to slink away, but his body is at all angles. So it's the <laughs> right. first time ever in history that I've seen what happens when a snake gets a spinal injury. <laughs> it's really it's really wonderful. But then they repeated exactly the same, which was um, the objection I raised earlier. But also, why did it show up the same way? It was basically because he had forgotten that he was uh, he had captured uh, Mowgli to go and eat, and so they just pushed the, pushed his body off the tree again. And that kind of gets to what I'm saying is that the film absolutely lacks any sense of stakes that so many of his other films had done. It comes across to me, especially in the void of the Mowgli character, the best way I can describe my impression of, of, of his journey is it's a take of let's take my bratty nephew to the zoo, the movie. <laughs> well, I, I think his arc is not unlike Pinocchio's mm -hmm. in the sense that he is a kid who thinks he knows what's going on and follows his instincts and basically needs to be mentored to learn life lessons, to learn about friendship from and loyalty from Baloo, to learn about responsibility from Bedgira, and just the idea of who are you and, and what is your home. And to the extent that the movie concentrates on a through line, it's that contrast between, well, what do you want to do and what do you need to do, which is part of the growing up process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this is a case where I find the film absolutely deficient and downright reprehensible when you compare how well it's in Pinocchio. For what you said about how it's scared straight the animated movie. Right. But, but the, the thing that scares them is these rock-solid questions mm -hmm. about how to behave that this is the right way to behave this is a, a way of behavior that will lead you astray but i'm finding this completely absent in anything Mowgli does he alternatively according to which scene is going to happen next he uh will follow bagheera until he decides he just doesn't wanna and then he just mm -hmm. goes away and then uh, bagheera then at least three or four different opportunities just leaves then he comes right back. <laughs> and uh, at times, he's the, the plot requires him to be sort of scared of Shere Khan, but then he sort of isn't appear to be scared about him uh, at all. He is left the home. He is, is the only home he's ever known, which he Mowgli then responds to by never mentioning it or referring to it ever again. And then in the mo in just the most saddest perfunctory moment I think in a Di in a Walt Disney film at least the ones we've discussed he just sees a girl 
And then in the biggest antidote of jungle fever ever, just forgets everybody, forgets all of his friends, forgets the animals who have supported him throughout his journey and doesn't even do a single look back. He just walks right in that village. It's like that family of wolves, all the stuff that both sacrifices that Baloo had to do for him, not worth a damn thing. It's like, oh, forget it. I got this gal now. Is there a deleted scene where he finds out, oh, hey, does your father work in construction? I, I, hey, I know a nice wolf den. It would make for a great Costco <laughs> once you clear that part of the jungle out. So it was just completely empty. It just came across that, like, when you visit King Louie, it's like, hey, the kid doesn't want to leave King Louie because it's just a kid at the mo- visiting the monkey house. <laughs> and then it's, and here's the dancing bear. Now the kid's having some fun with the dancing bear. You want to pull him like Bagheera. You're a frustrated uncle going, come on, kid, you got to go. You got to go. So, no, I want to stay with the bear, dancing bear. And it's just like a set piece to set piece of obligations for kids to enjoy. And it can't be more of a lack of effort than the kind of progressions that Disney's done in his earlier films for him. Well, it's not one of his earlier films, and it's not Pinocchio, and it was never meant to be that kind of thing. I correct myself. It was meant to be that kind of thing initially when a fellow named Bill Pete was the story man behind Jungle Book and wanted to tell a fairly dark tale that was similar in tone and story elements to Rudyard Kipling's original book, The Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. Bill Pete had uh, done the story for 101 Dalmatians and a film that came in between that we didn't talk about, it wasn't very well regarded, called The Sword and the Stone, the mm. uh, Disney animated take on the King Arthur legend, which didn't make much money at all. British, though, uh, concerns as as well. Back to Britain. (laughs) So Walt Disney himself did not like this direction that Pete was taking the movie. He had no longer was that confident in him because of previous uh, money losses and basically intervened and said, don't read the book. I'm going to bring the Sherman brothers in. We're going to design a lot of this movie around these songs, mm. and we're going to make it just a good old time. Interesting. So, on that basis, I think it's a fantastic success. Now, you're looking for a lot more thematics than the movie provides. I don't find the story worthless. I think it's a nice progression of a children's tale, but that's not what's getting the butts in the seats. <laughs> this is, uh, th- this is at the end of the day, a party movie. This is a movie just to enjoy for the gags, for the characterizations, for the good versus evil battles, the voices, the songs, All that comes into the ultimate Disney take on the popcorn movie. Hmm. Yeah. The popcorn movie is thought of as the film that's there out for entertainment. And unfortunately, and this may be a lot of my impression, but I feel it's kind of a popcorn as in the corn, the kernel product that just got overheated (laughs) and just gets passed into people. It's really interesting how you describe it, because I actually agree with you for a lot of it, and that's what I would consider a bit of a detriment to the movie, because I do feel that 
with the Sherman brothers, with these well-known actors. He brought in a bunch of ringers to just keep the kids distracted for 90 minutes and then let them buy the play sets and the sheets on, on, in the gift shop in Disneyland on the way. Well, damn, if every movie could distract me like that, I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> we should be absolutely fair that it's not a fault to give people a fun time at the movie, mm-hmm. for sure. But the movie also has all these other pro- components of it, and they didn't have to be this shoddy in order for like the, the songs to go and entertain. It comes across as, a, for me anyway, as, as a very mechanical type of, of process. But there's two things that I found really very surprising that when I saw it for this podcast, both related to Baloo the Bear. Yes. Uh, one of which is that he not only does personality, but it's a very unique one. It's kind of like the Bear Lebowski in a way. <laughs> and if you just think it's Baloo's story of learning to be a finally just grow up in his own way by just having to deal with a small kid, there there is an actual change to it. And there you see him wrestling, bear wrestling, <laughs> with, um, uh, with those ideas of how do you t- make sure that this kid's all right. So he does have an arc in the story. Well, it's the heart of the movie is the relationship between Mowgli and, and Baloo. It's just, mm. it's, re- it's really this lovely friendship. And it's a friendship that has a little bit of poignancy because it eventually has to end. Well, the ending is not dealt with such in such a blasé manner, <laughs> right down to the fact that Disney may have been quoting Casablanca as Baloo and Bagheera just walk up in the mist to continue their <laughs> French, beautiful friendship. <laughs> connect their beautiful <laughs> friendship. But the thing I've most noticed about him, apart from acting like uh, Jeff Lebowski in incredibly uh, ursine form, is the voice. It's a really good voice. It also sounds uncannily like a stoned John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on there, Mowgli. We got to get going. And just, I hear, oh, yeah, I hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was just really, really, right. really wild. It's also absolutely just Phil Harris's voice. Uh-huh. He, this was not a situation where Phil Harris developed a character. The character was developed around Phil Harris. So uh, there was a lot of ad-libbing, too, from hmm. both Phil Harris and, and, in the musical sense, Louis Prima, who are both such creative, free spirits that the Disney creative team just went with following these bigger-than-life guys and making animated characters out of them. It kind of predates what would eventually happen with Robin Williams and the genie in Aladdin. Oh, very, very interesting point. I know when I look at the Jungle Book and I was watching the monkeys, many of whom have these shaggy, beatnik-type mop tops themselves, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, this may be in one way a kind of one of the more jazzier of Walt Disney's efforts. I I think that's the perfect description. Mm. (laughs) So with the passing of Walt Disney in 1966, we've pretty much reached the end of this discussion, although as everyone in the world knows, the Disney legacy is alive and strong. Walt Disney is so omnipresent in our culture that we can all recognize his signature. Right. (laughs) And we can define uh, his company by three circles. Right. Over the films that we had talked about, we've seen his creative input 
in what I feel is a really interesting way because he is creative in the way of increasing what you can do with the genre that he found himself in. And specifically, I'm referring to on, on animation. Sure. And the way he was able to go and conceive of these things and be able to put the tools together to go and bring them about and then to continue to innovate with different budgetary and logistical constraints puts together an incredibly remarkable run. And his sense of wonder, especially about nature, and the idea of being able to go and create such a bounty of memorable characters and scenes and shots from multiple decades of film efforts is an astounding track record and testament to his ambition and his dedication. And we very much enjoyed delving into the past and our childhoods to revisit so many of these films. And we hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you have your own particular favorites on the films on Disney that we talked about here or from our earlier episode on him, or want to give a comment upon what you think about what we thought about Walt Disney... You can give the Directors Club an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club can be found in multiple places across the internet from Spotify, Facebook, and iTunes at Directors Club Podcast. We're on Twitter at DC Podcast, and you can find our other episodes, including part one of our look at Walt Disney's films on our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and hope to catch you on another episode of The Directors Club. See you real soon. But it also leads to some these these quirks. One of which I would just say is very tangential. But it was uh, about something uh, something that a friend of mine uh, found when they did a release of the live action version of 101 Dalmatians, as you meant the one where Glenn Close plays. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was seeing the advertisement for it on a marquee at a theater. And these are the old school marquees where you had to use the individual letters, and then you would often you would run out if there was things that had a lot of vowels. So whether that was the case or they just gave up on trying to spell, <laughs> the, the movie that you could have seen was called One Hundred One Dogs. It's <laughs> 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 just boy, is it dismissive. That's like calling Bambi a bunch of forest right, stuff. Right. <laughs> But honestly, that pales behind a, a, a thing that I just noticed while watching it for this podcast is one, uh, how does this family able to take care of the now 101 dogs?
mm-hmm. that they have to take care of. Well, it's because the uh, main human who was a songwriter has made a su- has put up a successful song. And as you hear the successful on the song, uh, song on the radio, what is it except Cruella DeVille, the song that he was singing about uh, uh, earlier in the movie? And it's a catchy song. It's actually a, a rare for a Disney. It's a very, this is one of the few songs in the, this animated piece. But uh, so you hear it on the radio and, it's, and it's, it's fun for when you're listening to it. But then I thought about it a little bit. It's like, wait a minute. You made a hit song out of talking what a horrible person your <laughs> wife's friend is. <laughs> and, and, and furthermore, everyone wanted to listen to how awful you're, how awful this person that, she's not a famous figure in the movie at all. So, so, in a di- so it just hit me that at that point that, oh my God, in terms of all the other innovations that Walt Disney's done throughout his career, he very well may have also invented the idea of the diss track. 